The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value, and so can you. Welcome to the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper, and wonderful to be with you again uh, for another week on the Business Elevation Show. And uh, this week, uh, several people have said to me, um, Chris, how do I prepare my business for sale? And quite uh, funnily, and coincidentally, I said, wow, that's quite interesting because I've got the perfect person on the show today to help with that. Uh, we're doing a show on preparing your business for sale with with Tim Luscombe. Uh, but before I get to the show with Tim, I want to say a big uh, thank you to my guest last week. Um, I really enjoyed talking with Dan Cashel. Uh, what a, a fascinating man uh, with lots of great ideas and thoughts and uh, and, uh, so if you're interested in doubling your sales, your profit, your time off, um, I would really recommend listening to it. Um, some of the, you know, it's little bits of magic. You know, are you um, looking to increase your business by 10% or are you a 10 times person? Um, go for 1% improvement each week. Um, what happens then is not linear. And I guess if you go from 1% to 101, then the next week it's at 1% of 101% and, it, and things just grow exponentially. Um, I also thought it was fascinating for a really successful uh, business. He was suggesting, this is a man who set up 11 businesses, that your percentage of payroll to revenue should be 25% or less. Um, I think that probably got quite a few people thinking after that show. So let's focus on today. Let's focus on preparing your business. Um, I'm going to be talking today with Tim Luscombe. Uh, we're going to talk about the do's and don'ts um, around um, preparing your business uh, for sale. He is uh, the expert I would go to in my network to help with this subject. Um, Tim started his career in financial management. He was part of the team that took um, Madge Networks, I'm sure it tells us a bit more about them, to a NASDAQ IPO on a 76% compound annual growth rate. Uh, after living and working in the US, Hong Kong, and he covered Asia Pacific and Europe, he returned to the UK to join a substantial distribution business to lead the acquisition and integration of various uh, businesses. He's been helping owner-managed businesses with strategy, funding, exit planning, and acquisition since 2002. He's a principal in an organization called KLO Partners, which is a corporate finance advisory business. He's also the past president, uh, immediate past president of the Professional Speaking Association in the UK, which is where I know Tim from, and chairman of Thames Valley Business Advisors. He's a man of huge integrity and I know a very high quality practical advice. And when it comes to maybe selling my business one day, I will be consulting with Tim. So a big welcome to Tim Luscombe. Good afternoon, everybody. Hi. How are you, Tim? I'm very well, thank you, Chris. Excellent. And you, you live somewhere down in the south of England, is that right? That's right. Uh, not far from Oxford. 
That's Oxford. Okay, um, beautiful part of the world. It is indeed. We have um, uh, a beautiful park, parkland behind us, and that borders the Thames. So um, I walk by the Thames most days. Excellent. You have a, if you don't mind me saying, you have a very Queen's English voice. So that, <laughs> that, that would expect from that part of the world. Oh, I could call you a Brummie, but I'd probably better not. <laughs> well, I'm actually from the north, so I say things like love and bath. Ah, oh, right. Okay. So okay. I'm not from, not from Birmingham. I do live in Leicestershire at the moment, though. Um, so, but no, I'm not quite Birmingham, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to work with a, um, a, a chap who'd uh, spent years trying to remove his northern accent. But uh, my wife picked up on it one evening when we were out, and she said, you're a northerner, aren't you? And he said, yes, but how did you know? She said, one word gave you away. You said fooward. Oh, really? <laughs> fooward instead of food. He was a Geordie. Oh, fooward. <laughs> fooward, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so the first job I ever had down in London, people didn't know what I was saying. I had a, My boss took me aside and said, Chris, we need to have a chat. People don't understand you. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. You do change your voice over over time if you really move around and try <laughs> oh absolutely that was one of the things that happened to me when i was working overseas when i was working in america and then when i was working in in asia your language changes you use different words for the dif for the different environments that you're in because you still have to communicate effectively and i bet people loved your accent in the united states of course <laughs> you sell anything to anybody with an English accent in the United States. <laughs> so, Tim, uh, tell us a bit about what got you interested in selling businesses, mergers, acquisitions, all that sort of big business world. Well, when, when I look back at my career, uh, one of my very first jobs, I was recruited to sort out the accounts for a, um, a newly acquired business, a relatively small business that had been bought by a much, much larger business. But the business that had been bought was a business that uh, it was in the oil industry. And it ran what the, what you'd call, Amer what the Americans would call gas stations, what we would call petrol stations. And it had a fleet of uh, road tankers delivering the oil and, um, you know, people wearing overalls and you know, driving lorries and mechanics, all that um, general business environment was very much the hands-on getting it done. Uh, the business that made the acquisition, the parent company, was a business that bought and sold tanker loads of oil on the high seas. It was a trading desk. There were a dozen guys in suits, and they spent their time on the phone doing deals. So the two businesses were absolute chalk and cheese. I found out later that the trading company had bought the operational company because they had a choice between buying their customer or taking a very large bad debt. So they took the company on, uh, but didn't know what to do with it. And I ended up trying to sort out the accounts for that business. But I was then doing what I would now call post-acquisition integration. I was helping the two different businesses communicate with each other. And I suppose that's where it really started, right back then. But... Wherever I went in the world, whatever I was doing, there always seemed to be mergers and acquisitions involved. Mm, and I guess you realised uh, the differences in culture and that sort of thing, which which start to come into play when there's two very different organisations uh, coming together. Well, it don't, they, they don't even have to be different organisations. They can be very similar organisations. I've seen 
significant cultural changes when you put two competitors together, two people operating in the same industry. But because the personalities are different, the the uh, environment changes, the culture changes. Mm. So who were, I see, so Mads Networks, did that come bef- after you moved to Silicon Valley or was that before? No, that was, that was the move to Silicon Valley. Um, what happened there was I joined um, a, a small IT business in the UK. I was um, helping them, funnily enough, sort out their accounts. And uh, I joined a business that employed uh, about 50 people and had turned over about $15 million. And it was very exciting. It was really moving very quickly. Things were changing all the time. There were new sales records every, you know, every week. There were new products being launched left, right, and center. And this was in the early days of local area networking, um, when local area networking, putting computers together on a network, took over from the mini computer era. It really does go back that far. I am that old. Uh, the, <laughs> uh, but they were winning awards left, right, and center, and the business was growing at a ridiculous rate. Uh, and I joined them. Uh, basically to sort out the accounts and then ended up being number two in the worldwide finance organization. And that's the business where we went public on a 78% compound annual growth rate. This little business that I joined turning over about $15 million, we went public on nearly $100 million just three years later. It was an astonishing ride. Wow. So when you say a 76% compound annual growth rate for anybody who's not financial and doesn't understand that, does that mean that it was it was... It was growing at 76% a year, is that what? Well, it's growing at at 76% and then 76% and then 76%. So it went from 15, it effectively went from 15 to 45 to to the best part of 100 million uh, in those three years. It was just an astonishing ride. Um, Amazing business, absolutely amazing. It was in the right place at the right time with fantastic technology. Absolutely fantastic technology that beat everything else that was available at the time. Right, and you moved at really short notice with three children, didn't you? What was that? What was that like, and what did you learn? Oh, that was very entertaining. We were um, in that business. We were planning on going public, planning on the IPO for the April, and in November the year before, we recruited a U.S. finance director to come in and look after the U.S. accounts and. Uh, which was by then the the biggest part of the business. And she came over to the UK and I ran an induction program for her, getting her into the business, getting her up to speed. And then she went back to the States. And she was in the States for uh, about three months. And then in February, she we're going public in April. In February, she handed in her notice. And being an American, of course, she only gave us a couple of weeks notice. uh, rather made a mess of our plans to go public because you can't take a business public in the States if your largest division doesn't have a finance director in place. Uh, it would be asking for trouble. So I ended up being the person who went out there to cover uh, whilst we went public. And I took the kids with me. I had three relatively small children. I think my son was seven, maybe eight. Um, and his two sisters were five and four. We just had to go. We just had to do it. It was uh, very interesting because when I got out there, the very first thing that happened was she came back. She'd left by then and was acting as a consultant. She came back into the business and she ran an induction program for me 
to induct me into the US business in the same way I had previously inducted her into the whole business. (laughs) (laughs) That was a very strange experience, to say the least. But your family enjoyed it, did they? Did it work for for them? It worked very well for them. Um, They were young enough that, okay, they were missing a bit of school, but it didn't really matter that much. Seven-year-old not being in school for a couple of months was no bad thing provided they're learning other ways. Um, and his two sisters were, as I say, five and four. So it was neither here nor there for them. Um, but we had a great time. Um, I'd inherited a very strong team that um, she put together. They weren't empowered. They weren't allowed to do things, but they were a strong team. Um, once I empowered them and told them, you, know, you can do this, you are allowed to go ahead and do it. Everything was really easy for me. It was a really easy ride. And what that meant was that I was able to spend a lot of time touring California. So, yeah, we had a great holiday. Oh, very <laughs> nice indeed. Very nice. So, <laughs> so, so let's talk about a business sale. What was the worst business sale that you've come across? And what does it teach us as potential people who might one day be intending to sell our businesses? Well, I think there are two that come to mind. One was very early on in my advisory career. I was dealing with a an owner-managed business, and um, I was helping the owner um, market the business. I wasn't really doing anything in terms of preparation for sale. It was much more the actual selling of the business. I was looking for potential buyers for his business. And um, one of the areas that you look for is any concentration of the customer base. Because of the more business you're doing with any one customer, the uh, less attractive that is to the potential acquirer, because it's too big a risk, too many eggs in one basket. And the rule of thumb is that less than 20% of your business should be with any one customer. So I'd looked at this business, and I'd looked at their accounts, and I've been through their customer base, and it looked to be nicely spread. You know, it was, wasn't a terribly big business, but they had about 20 customers. And they all seemed to be fairly even. You know, it went in batches. Sometimes the one customer would be dominant for a period of time, but it seemed to be quite nicely spread, relatively low risk. And it wasn't until I actually had a buyer looking at the details, and a very serious interested buyer looking at the details, and he went through the company names that were on this customer list, and he said, but that one's owned by Tyco, and that one's owned by Tyco. Mm. And what actually had happened was that every customer this business had been dealing with had been acquired by Tyco, which in those days was known as take your company over. Mm. <laughs> they, they were very acquisitive. But the end result was that all the business they were doing were, was with subsidiaries of Tyco. The business owner who was selling didn't tell me. He didn't. I don't know why he didn't tell me. To this day, I don't know why he didn't tell me. But he didn't tell me. And it wasn't until I had a buyer looking at the business that he said, hang on a minute, all of their businesses with Tyco, that's too big a risk. I can't do this deal. So that's probably one of the worst that I've been involved with. It, it never actually, we never actually managed to do a deal. That business turned out to be unsaleable because of that risk. Mm. The other one, um, I can laugh about it now. I didn't laugh about it at the time. We got to the point where we're into legal due diligence. So we've got the lawyers poring over things. And 
uh, it turned out that sometime in the past, the owner of the business had a venture capitalist involved in it. And that venture capitalist had had a shareholding, obviously. And the shareholding was um, uh, a, a particular kind of preference stock that carried significant voting rights if it wasn't redeemed. We couldn't prove that those shares had ever been redeemed, even though the shareholding had actually been bought out 20 odd years ago. So when we got to the legal due diligence, it looked as though we didn't own, or my client didn't own his own business. Uh. Um, it was several days and um, uh, quite a lot of heartache before we actually managed to find some paperwork that stopped, that resolved the problem. Uh, extra unnecessary stress. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we've, got, we've got a couple of minutes left till commercial break. I just wondered if you could sort of share with us, you know, if, you, if people are listening here are considering one day uh, maybe selling their business, when should they start thinking about it? <laughs> well, um, I think the answer to that one is um, uh, well reflected in Stephen Covey's uh, seven habits. Um, start with the end in mind. Uh, if you're really serious about selling your business and selling it profitably, uh, selling it successfully, you really ought to have started on the day you started the business. As a minimum, you need three years to prepare for a sale. Um, it, it really is quite a lengthy process to make sure everything's absolutely right. So you're basically you're de you're designing your business in such a way that it's attractive for somebody to buy it ultimately. Absolutely. And different buyers want different things, but some things are common. And we can talk about those a little bit later on. Absolutely. We'll, we'll chat about those uh, after, after the commercial break. Um, so if, if you want to, if you're interested in clearly finding out about what um, the key things we need to consider to make our business really attractive to buy um, over that time horizon, do join us after the break. There's going to be a lot of great content uh, from Tim. Uh, I know that from having prepared this interview with him. Um, I was busy scribbling all sorts of things down. So do uh, join us back in a couple of minutes with a pen and paper at the ready. And uh, we'll just have a couple of minutes break now. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program, one-to-one -one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Tim Luscombe. We're talking about preparing your business for sale. And um, that's just sort of to start before we go into some of the key things. I'm kind of interested, Tim, what percentage of people who want to sell their business actually manage to do it? Well, there are no clear statistics, as I'm sure you might imagine. The most private company sales are not reported. But the received wisdom amongst the community of people who advise business owners is about 75% of them do not sell. So only about 25% do sell and a very small percentage sell for a premium. Right. So that's a premium premium over what their net asset, what, what, over what? Over their asset value. That's over correct. Asset value, yeah. yeah. So over the value of all the bits and pieces that you own. Only a very small percentage, 7 8% sell for a premium to their asset value. Right. Okay. And, and, and do you find the same with, with, with someone like yourself who's working with a client to get them ready for sale uh, and to potentially find buyers? Is it, is it still at 25% or do they have a much higher probability because they work with an expert? They have a much higher probability because we can create a business that is truly saleable. Um, you know, there are all kinds of reasons why a business would not sell, but probably right at the top of the list is the situation where if you take the owner out of the business, there is no business. Those people don't have a business. They actually have a job. Yes. So they work for themselves, but they've got a job. Uh, um, and that kind of business is not saleable, not really. So you you basically have to, over a period of time, make, you know, if there's a, if there's a ca- principal character in that business, you have to kind of do them out of a job, do you? Yeah, um, I tell my clients who are preparing for sale, their number one objective is to make themselves redundant. Put themselves in a position where they don't have to work five days a week. Uh, They only have to come in once a month. And then you've got to the point where actually you've got a business that's probably going to be saleable. Okay, cool. And sort of, you know, you've got all these big brands with people's names on, you know, Marks and Spencers and that's obviously an old, old, older you know, well-established brand, but there are brands with people's names on. Do, do they sell or do you need to you know, create a, a brand name that is not associated with an individual? I don't think that's really necessary. Um, brand, branding is, is a strange area. Um, I, I'm often asked, what's the value of a brand? And the answer to that is really nothing at the you know, below the very high level businesses, the, the, the worldwide brands, yes, of course, Nike's got a value. Yes, of course, somebody like Apple has a tremendous brand value. But for most of the businesses you've never heard of, their brand value is minimal. Um, their value is really in the profitability that they're able to generate on an ongoing basis. Mm. So what it's called, it probably doesn't matter that much. Right. Uh, It's certainly not something that's going to stop a sale. Um, It might be something that means the acquirer will have to change the name once they've bought it because it's not representative of what the business does. Mm. But Mm. I I would not be too concerned about that brand, about that 
that particular area. It's not something that would stop me. And it's not something I would look to change in the process of going through a, uh, a preparation for sale exercise. Yes. There are many more important things to focus on, many more important things to, to concentrate on. Um, the brand value, you know, the value of a brand in a normal private company is the value of the operating profits that it generates. Makes sense. So what, what are the key things we need to consider to make our business really attractive to, for somebody to buy? I think probably the, the, the number one thing is um, what I call recurring revenue. Now, I don't mean by that selling time and time again to the same customer base. I mean people who are on long-term contracts who are paying you a sum of money every month for a service that is easily provided without the involvement of the owner. So an annuity stream, uh, an ongoing revenue stream is gold dust. It's the kind of thing that uh, makes a business incredibly attractive to a potential acquirer and is of tr great value because they can easily see how they can take that revenue stream and add it to what they currently do and they've suddenly got that revenue stream secured and there's very little risk attached to it because those customers are continuing to pay every single month. Mm -hmm. That's that's probably the, the biggest single gold nugget you can have. Somebody who's on a long-term service contract and there's a few wrinkles attached to that. Um, one of them is that the it's very usual in those service contracts that you have what's called a change of control clause. So that if I've got a contract with a customer and uh, I'm providing services to that customer and in the contract there will be a clause that says if, I, if my business changes hands, the customer has the right to terminate the contract. If that clause is there, it reduces the value of the contract quite significantly because, of course, there's no certainty for the potential acquirer. If that clause isn't there, it's more valuable. So right. if you can avoid them, you should do so. Yes. You can avoid those change of control clauses. You can't always avoid them because some industries, some customers will insist on having them there. And from the customer's perspective, you've got to recognize that they're doing business with Chris Cooper. And if Chris Cooper is no longer in that business, they don't want to do business with Chris Cooper. They want to do business. They don't want to do business with the person who's bought Chris Cooper's business. They want to have the option not to do that. Mm. So it's their safety mechanism. But from a company sale perspective, if you can get rid of it, if it's not there, that's a much better idea. Mm. So, so is it more is it more attractive? To, rather than um, businesses that are maybe time for money, is it uh, often more attractive to have things like um, I was working with some clients this morning who who do software, have some soft, have some software um, yes. that they're creating. Is it more attractive to have something like that uh, that maybe is generating a stream of, of ongoing revenue? Absolutely, then... uh, you know, time for money businesses are, are quite difficult um, because very often a time for money business where you're trading your time or you're trading a the time of a team for a particular for a, uh, an income stream that becomes quite difficult to be sustainable to be long term um, in in that world the best you can hope for probably is a client retainer where you've got a retainer from the client for x months rather than an ongoing service stream but almost every business that's in that field can actually create or, if you like, productize, horrible word, but 
turn their services into products. And if you can turn those services into products that are sold without you being there, that is much more valuable than trying to trade time for money. I mm. have a, I have a long-term, uh, long-term friend who um, runs a, an HR consulting business. Um, uh, it's a fairly high-level consulting and training business that he's been involved with, and he does. He, he started it many years ago. It's actually named after him as well, funnily enough. Um, and he went through the process of trying to build the business, first of all, by recruiting people into the business so that he had other people delivering and he was just selling. And that worked to a degree, but he found the people he brought into the business took the training from him, got themselves established, and then they went independent. They went and did yes. their own thing and were no longer working for him. So he'd invested a lot of time and effort getting them up to speed and then they went away. So that was sort of phase one, if you like. Um, he then realized that actually all that training material that he created to bring them up to speed as associates, as deliverers on his behalf, that was really actually a product. And he turned it into a proper product that can be sold standalone, but actually most of the time it's sold by his associates as a part of a consulting agreement. And his role now is purely one of finding the business for them. So his company has become a business winner. Mm. And, and the owner of the intellectual property that the people delivering that intellectual property, delivering those services, are then effectively renting from him. So if he's not there, it doesn't matter, provided there's somebody winning the business and they own the property that can then be delivered. So he's taken a business that was time for money and turned it into a business that is product, product, product. Yes, yes, works. That uh, makes a lot of a lot of sense. And anything other key things? You talked about recurring revenue there. Uh, we talked a bit about time for business. For business, anything else we need to be really considering? It's almost everything in the business from top to bottom. But the things that make it most attractive are to have uh, a business that operates without the owner. Yeah, a business that isn't really time for money because time for money is difficult to sustain over time. The recurring revenues, um, second line management team. You've got to have a business that operates without you. But in order to do that, that probably means you've got to have a second line management team who are able to run the business when you're not there. So spending time developing your team is extremely beneficial both from a business value perspective, but also actually from a perspective of having an easier life. Yes. I have a number of clients where we've started down the road of preparation for sale because the owner of the business has become frustrated with the business. It's taking uh, too much of their time. It's too much like hard work. And to be honest, they get bored with it. They get to the point where they're no longer really, really interested in that business because they've done it all before. Yep. I, and I, I go in and I look at the business, I do the, the initial assessment piece of you know, what's good, what's bad, what can be improved, what, do we need, what changes do we need to make? And sometimes the result of that will put in place processes and structures and perhaps people, but quite often it's developing the people within the business. And suddenly the MD, instead of working six days a week, you know, 12 hours a day, is working three days a week playing golf the rest of the time and thinking actually this is quite nice i quite mm. like this mm. 
And it's at that point they say, actually, Tim, I don't want to sell right now. I'm going to hold on for a bit. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I'm sort of thinking, well, actually, it would be nice if you sold because that's where I get my success fee. But all right, fine. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> So, so what things in a business constitute intellectual property? Um, the, well, there's the obvious stuff when you've got patents and copyrights. But I'd like to take intellectual property a lot further than that. Very often in a business, there's a particular way of doing things. It's sort of, um, it's more the know-how piece than anything else. It's, it's not something you can copyright, not something you can patent, but there's a way of doing things. I have a a client in um, a floristry business and when we started talking about their sales process they sell uh, flowers and uh, um, they do floristry for some fairly large corporate events but also for some fairly large weddings and I was talking to the um, owners of this business about how they sell to a wedding and she took me through, the owner of the business took me through the steps that she goes through to convince the mother of the bride, because it's always the mother of the bride, how to uh, convince the mother of the bride to use their services. And it was quite a complicated process, and there were seven or eight different steps that she went through. And it was actually very impressive. And I said, that's fantastic. So what's your success rate? And she said, oh, I think it's about 90%. Well, I'm converting... 90% of my prospects into customers. And I said, so that's fantastic. Who else can do this in the business? And she said, nobody. I'm the only person that can do it. And my response to that was to document it. Have a process that's set out that somebody else can follow. It's a double win there because that means the business can operate when she's not there. And it also means that there's a piece of intellectual property that somebody else can come in, look at and go, ah, yes, I understand how to do this. That gives me a high level of comfort to be able to move things forward, to be able to carry on this business and know that I can be successful with it. So, so doc documenting everything mm. that's uh, relevant is that through, through the years that you're thinking about preparing, you're preparing for your sale is valuable, documenting policies and and ways of doing things that are successful. Well, absolutely. You've got to think of it, think of this from the other side of the fence. You've got to put yourself in the buyer's shoes. If the buyer comes along and says to you, well, how do you convert a prospect into a customer? If you have to think about it and then you tell them verbally, that's one level of reassurance. But if, on the other hand, you go to a file, you get out a piece of paper and you give it to them and say, there's the process that we follow, that's a completely different level of reassurance, isn't it? It is. It makes them feel much more comfortable. They understand how it, they can, they can see that it takes an individual to do it, but they can also see there's a defined process that you can follow to make it happen. And you can apply that to almost every area of the business from the top to the bottom. Everything you do, if it's documented, if there's a way of doing it that is it's easy to get somebody else to do it, then that's tremendous because that gives the buyer a high level of comfort. Two things. I remember uh, you know, there was things like when, when I was working in corporates, uh, BS5750 and ISO 9000 in the UK, which were kind of standards where people would document everything and they would get audited. Yes. And then they, they worked like mad for the auditing process to 
document all of their processes and procedures and then they would put them away in files for a year and come back to them <laughs> when, for, for the next audit and say, oh my goodness, that sort of changed. We need to tweak this and put it back on the shelf again. Uh, yep. are, are those sorts of things you know, good to... Yes, yes they are. Uh, and, uh, it, they, they are good. Um, they are, having a quality standard in the business is great. Um, it, again, it gives the, uh, the potential buyer some higher level of comfort that the things are being done properly. Um, it's not the highest level because that only works for the buyer if actually they're in use. You know, if, as you say, they've been you know, written and filed and nobody's looked at them from one, one year to the next, it's not terribly helpful. But if it's there all the time and actually in use and people are following those procedures, those work instructions, so if you like the very highest level of quality, that's a different game. Um, and that's much more important and much more valuable to the potential acquirer. From yeah. the acquirer side of the fence, it's all about reducing risk. It's all about minimizing the risk that they're taking that something will go wrong with the business. Mm. So I think we've got a couple of minutes left. Um, what happens if you unexpectedly get a call out of the blue from someone interested in buying your business? Um, what a... What should you what should you do? Or is it better that you actually search yourself and find one? Well, um, I would never recommend searching yourself. Um, uh, that's that's a job for a specialist. That's a job for me uh, um, because you've got to find the right acquirer, the one that's going to get the maximum benefit from the acquisition. But it's not at all unusual that uh, if you're running a successful business, you get a knock on the door from somebody who says, "I'm I'm really interested in buying your business. Uh, can we have a conversation?" Well, the answer is nearly always, yes, we'll have a conversation. But the very first thing to do is to have that conversation off-site. Don't allow uh, the potential acquirer to come into your business and spend time in your business because there's a reasonably good chance that your people will get to know what's going on. They'll see somebody strange in the business and they'll be worried by it. So you mm -hmm. don't want to create the FUD factor. You want to avoid that. Uh, so, you do, so you do it uh, quietly. I suppose also if you've, you you would need want to make sure that your office is a, is, is you know going to be attractive in the right ways. Perhaps you know the environment <laughs> makes a big difference, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. First impressions count. First <laughs> impressions really do. And if you've got a tatty car park or a tatty office, you really don't don't want to bring people there. You want to tidy it up first. One of my uh, clients. We've got to we've got to finish it a bit. One of my clients a, a number of years ago. Uh, they had said to a potential client, they said, you know, whenever you want to, just drop into the office and, and come and see us. So about six months later, we called up this potential client and said, um, oh, you, you never dropped into the office. And he said, oh, I did. And, and he said, I, I did. And I, I didn't know where to go. Someone didn't greet me very well. So I left. <laughs> <laughs> so he remained a potential client, no doubt. He did, yes. So that was quite, quite interesting. So we're going to go to commercial break now. And after the commercial break, we're going to talk about the kind of selling process and how to handle that and how emotions can, can run high and um, all those sorts of things. So we're back with you again. Do join us in just a couple of minutes. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? 
Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high-return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need, exactly when you need it, so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. So tell us, uh, Tim, about you know, you've, you've either done a search and you've found somebody who's... Um, you know, interested in buying and you're starting to go through this this process or alternative you yeah so somebody's contacted you and you think oh, this could be quite interesting what sort of companies might you search for that would be ideal to buy the, the business my first question and then let's have a chat about that whole process of selling and how it should work well the the right company to buy your business is going to be somebody who can really gain what you might call a synergistic benefit from the business. Uh, And often that is somebody who is selling in an adjacent market. So they can then take what they do, what they sell, what they offer, what services they provide, and provide them to your customers. And they can take what you provide and offer it to their customers. So instead of just doing the 1 plus 1 equals 2, they do 1 plus 1 equals 3 or 4 or even 5. So it's always the strategic acquirer that we're looking for. You know, and that could be on a customer base. It could be on a, uh, a set of services or a set of skills that you have that they don't have. And uh, There are some real bellwethers in the IT industry in particular that, that do this all the time. If you look at uh, Cisco, for example... Um, they were, I don't know what they've done most recently, but they were doing between 20 and 30 acquisitions a year. And what they were doing were buying people who had developed clever technology that they could then offer to their customers through their incredible marketing machine. They get more value that way. The seller gets more value because, of course, they've suddenly got access to this marketing machine that's going to get their product in front of thousands of people rather than just one or two. 
So the first thing to do when you're looking for a potential acquirer is to identify the people for whom you are going to be a really strategic acquisition. And that usually means it's not a competitor. It's not somebody in the same, not somebody doing exactly the same thing. Uh, and, and unless they want a larger slice of the market, perhaps. Well, even if they do want a larger slice of the market, even then, the chances are they're not going to pay you very much because mm -hmm. they already know what you do. They know how to do it. They know who your customers are. So why are they going to pay you a lot of money? Mm. Well, I'm kind of intrigued as, as well sometimes by acquisition. And you see, you see, I remember things like Friends United being acquired. And I was thinking back to a quote that uh, Dan Cashel shared last week, actually. He was talking about Disney, who had a bit of a mantra, which was, you can steal the ideas, but not the magic. Mm -hmm. And I imagine, you know, sometimes what seems to happen is people, you know, buy the ideas, but they don't manage to recreate the magic. <laughs> oh, yes. The, the world of acquisitions is littered with horror stories of <laughs> businesses that got it wrong for one reason or another. Um, I, I've done a bit of research in this area uh, because one of, one of the other side things I do is help people buy businesses. And if you've got to buy a business, you want to make it successful. For me, the biggest single failures in, in acquisitions have all been something to do with the culture, something to do with the fact that these businesses are in such different worlds that they just don't um, synchronize with each other. They don't work together. And uh, yeah, the biggest write-off in corporate history before the latest financial crash was AOL Time Warner, when America Online uh, bought Time Warner. And you had a new age internet business dealing with a traditional publisher. And, and they just never managed to generate any, any real synergies out of it. It was a, a disaster from beginning to end. So getting that cultural fit right, getting that culture to work well, is very, very important. Mm -hmm. one, of the, you know, from the, one of the things that um, I've realized over the years is that there's a sweet spot in terms of size the chances are the potential acquirer, the right acquirer for you, will be between three and ten times your size. If they're less than three times your size, then they're going to get indigestion when they try and buy you. Yes. Because they don't have the management structures, they don't have the resources to manage you. On, if they're more than ten times your size, you're not important. You're not valuable enough to be exciting for them. So that's my measure. I look for people who are between three and ten times the size of the business. It's one more criteria to put into it. Uh, and that helps, I think, in identifying the right kind of people to whom they're going to, actually going to get excited about doing this deal. Because you want a bit of excitement on the other side of the table. You want the buyer to be excited about the thought of getting involved with your business because that's how you're going to get the maximum value for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I think so. that's really, really helpful. That because people could, you say, waste an awful lot of time in their conversation, yeah. uh, only to get to the point where they they can't afford you, they can't yeah. afford the deal, or they're trying to get you into a real snip of what you're worth. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and you know, if the deal is right, the money is there. Um, that's uh, yeah, that's another another little mantra. Um, if it's the right kind of deal and it's the right sort of size, 
there's a very, very good chance you'll be able to get financing for it. But if it's not there, then you know, if, if the deal isn't right, then the chances of getting funding for it are very, very small. Mm-hmm. Makes makes huge amount of sense. Yep. So like the deal's right, the money's there. You, you think you've, it's also probably, you know, for business owners, there's a, can be an awful lot of emotion in the, in the sale, can't there? Oh, it's horrific. Um, you know, if you've been doing something, and, and to be honest, most business owners didn't start out to create a business. They didn't start out to create something they were going to sell. They started out doing something because they happened to be quite good at it. Yes. They're a good engineer or they're a good consultant or they're a, they're good at something. And because they're good at it, it becomes their business. It becomes their livelihood. And then they start employing other people. And actually, one of the things you very often see in the owner-managed business is you've got somebody who is really good at a particular thing. And now they've ended up running a substantial business and they're not actually very good at running that substantial business. They're still very good at the original thing they were doing. Classic for me was an engineer I dealt with a few years ago. Uh, lovely chap, got on very well with him, had a lovely business. He had actually create, created a product that was patented worldwide, and they were the only people doing this, and they were in a, a good state in terms of growth. But he was fed up with being a manager in the business. He didn't want to manage. He wanted to be an engineer. So much so that we were going through the sale process and his objective with the sale was to sell all of the business so his family wealth was secured, but he wanted to stay on as effectively chief design engineer. He wanted to be left in a lab by himself to go play with his toys and come up with new products. That was all he wanted to do. Mm. He didn't want to be involved in running the business day to day. And we had a buyer come to visit and... Ken was in the room with the buyer, but he wasn't focusing. And I'm chairing this meeting between the buyer, the potential buyer and Ken. And he just wasn't in the room. He wasn't really focusing. And I said, Ken, you know, what's going on here? And I said to the guys, can you just give us, give us a couple of minutes? There's something going on with Ken. I'm not quite sure what it is. Let me go and find out what's going on. And I took Ken out of the room. I said, Ken, what's the matter? He said, oh, I got this email this morning from this customer. They want, they, they, they've got a problem. And they want me to try and solve it for them. And I just can't stop thinking about it. So I'm not focusing on the meeting. I'm focusing on trying to solve the problem for the customer. And I looked at him and I laughed and I said, Ken, how long do you need? He said, oh, give me an hour, will you? I said, all right, I'll take them out for a coffee and we'll come back. So I took the buyers away, bought them a cup of coffee. And we came back an hour and 10 minutes later or something like that. And there was Ken and he was beaming. And he said, I solved it. I found the solution. The guys are building it now. I said, that's fantastic, Ken. Now, can we do this meeting, please? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really sorry. And he was back focused and actually uh, <laughs> ready to go in the sales meeting. But his focus was very much on solving the customer problem rather mm. than getting involved with the sale process itself. He was just mm. so excited by that, by that opportunity. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, the emotions can get very high, and he was getting very excited, not by the opportunity of selling the business, but by the opportunity of solving the customer's problem. Yes, yes. And I suppose there's you know, some people, you know, they do, they want to sell, uh, they sell a business because probably partly sometimes for time of life or, you know, maybe other reasons they want to go and do something else. But actually, it's quite nice to leave a legacy, isn't it, and know that what you've done lives on. Yes, 
Yes, um, and you know, that's often a significant motivation for the for the uh, the vendor. Uh, the biggest, um, the the commonest one of those is when people start talking about I want to sell to my management team. I want to I want to, the management team to do a management buyout. Most of the time, the management team aren't ready. Mm. They haven't done enough work. Uh, they haven't got enough structure. They had, probably haven't got all the skill sets in order to make that happen. And one of the things that you do when you put together a, an exit strategy for somebody is you help them build that management team to the point where they can actually run the business without you because that's what the potential buyer wants. Now, whether you're going to go from there to actually selling the business to them is a secondary step, and that's often a financial question, because the chances are the management team don't have enough money to be able to buy you out at full trade value. Um, they're going to be they're going to have less resources, and it's going to be yes. more difficult for them to borrow. It's going to be tougher for them to do it, and you're going to have to fund you as the business seller are going to have to fund some part of the acquisition. It's mm. not a clean break as well. Can be done, has been done many times but it's not a clean break. It is one way in which you can ensure the future of the team by giving them control of their own destiny. We've just got a, a couple of minutes left. Um, just, just very quickly, how do you help people through this journey? Well, I start by doing what I call an assessment. It's a combination of looking at the financial value of the business. and you know, The value of any business is only what a willing buyer will pay to a willing seller, but there are methodologies you can use to try and estimate what that might be. Um, how much the buyer will pay really depends upon how excited they get and how big the opportunity is for them. So it's a financial valuation, but also it's an assessment. And I use a fairly well-structured questionnaire where it takes three or four hours to go through it and look at the business from every different perspective, as many as possible. And the purpose of that is to identify the strengths and weaknesses and be able to see what the challenges are, what the opportunities are within the business. From that, you can then identify who are the potential buyers for this business. Where are they going to be sitting? What markets are they going to be in? What are they going to be doing? And again, as I said earlier, we're looking for the people who can sell what you do to their customers and sell what they do to your customers. So it's an adjacent market rather than a direct competitor. Once you've got those two pieces, then it's a case of putting together uh, a marketing pack, if you like, it's called an information memorandum. Usually, um, you might, you can't use the word prospectus because it's a regulated word, but that's what it is. It's an offer to a document that offers the opportunity to buy the business. Um, I do two things. First, though, I identify the potential acquirers, and then I contact them to find out what they're actually looking for. Are they acquisitive? Are they interested in buying? And if they are, what kind of thing are they looking for? Because that gives me the opportunity to make the information memorandum look like what they're buying for, mm. look like what they're buying. And then, we, then we, we go through the process of project managing from beginning to end. Everything is project managed by, by me so that the owner can carry on running the business. As funny enough, there's still a business to be managed, still a business to be run along the way. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm going to have to hurry there because we're coming to the end. I wonder if you've got a final message you'd like to share with us. Um, spend time on preparation for sale. It is never wasted, and preparation for sale is an extensive process. 
focus on your customers first, then focus on your team. Excellent. Tim, been an absolute pleasure. I certainly took uh, lots of thoughts and ideas from that. I'm sure other people other people did uh, some really you know key things about recurring revenue be careful about time time for money um things about documenting processes i think that was the one i've got particularly underlined in here uh, and i think some great content there around things like sweet spot the size of companies for buying you so wonderful to talk to you uh, tim really appreciate it and um, for tim's um details if you want to um access uh, tim you can go to tim's website um it's klopartners.co.uk. I think Tim is the L in KLO. I think it's, uh, is it Peter Kruger? That's um, correct. Mark, Mark Oxen. Oxen. Oxen, yeah, and um, who, who are your, your partners. So you can go and check that out. I'm sure there'll be more information on there about what Tim does and how Tim helps, etc. On next week's show, um, we have uh, Cathy O'Dowd. Um, Cathy uh, was the first lady to climb Everest from both sides. Uh, she's talking about reaching new heights. I'm having a, a week off uh, for some um, family time. Uh, so um, it'll be it's a, a show that we um, aired a few years ago, but a, a good one. Kathy is a fascinating speaker, author, um, big conference speaker, and uh, an incredible adventurer. So hope you enjoy that show and look forward to being back with you again in a couple of weeks. We thank you for listening to the Business Elevation Show. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more.